This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, good morning, good morning. What's up, Kyle? Hey, Kyle. Hey, Jen. Wow. Uh, gosh. You know, I just want the listeners to know that if it ever sounds like I'm coming in with a lot of energy and they're coming in with lower energy and you're thinking, oh, that can't be what it looks like while they're looking at each other. The answer is it looks exactly how it sounds. I just want to be very clear about that. If you could see it, you'd be like, yeah, that sound. it looks exactly how it sounds. So I, I always J- think JT's reading his emails when we're doing the, the warm up. No, it's an hour. It's oh, early for you true. guys. It's an hour earlier for me. I'm still on my first cup of coffee. Yeah, but you've been up since 4 a.m. just cranking nope. out work, yeah? Nope, not even close. No, um, I, I, I got a good night's sleep last night. But you know what, JT? You have a good reason for being maybe a little bit, not down in the dumps, but more melancholy this morning because you've made a transition, JT. I feel like I married off my daughter to preschool. Um, <laughs> she's four and and she's going to preschool and it feels like i'm already saying goodbye to her i, I don't mm. know how to do this yeah yeah, yeah. some colorado a, schools are a little weird though like our our school schedule is different thomas doesn't start school till after labor day really so, yeah so he, he has two more weeks of hanging out at home so on friday bailey will be at school and he and i are gonna have a due day we're gonna go do some trampoline jumping and golfing and just hang out as guys. Meanwhile, my little girl, my little precious baby daughter is going to be <laughs> trouncing out, off into the out world. living her life, man. <laughs> She's got places right. to be. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, it's just going to be like, what if, she, what if she comes home and she tells you today, she's like, sorry, Dad, I'd love to hang out, but I've got some homework to do. Yeah. What are you going to nah, do? I can't do Well, she did say something like that kind of uh, last night before bed. I was like, hey, will you give you know Dad a kiss before school tomorrow? We do kisses on the nose. And uh, she was like, well, I have to go to school, Daddy. So I don't know that I can. And I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. It just she's started. up those kisses for the playground. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my gosh. Edit that. Out. <laughs> uh, my heart just dropped to my stomach thinking about that. Oh, that was Lydia's totally Claire. Claire was like a kissing bandit. And I'm like, Claire, <laughs> read the room. Cut it out. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle how, how's Lydia doing? I mean, she's got to be kicking stuff up. Uh, yeah. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about kissing on the playground? No, no. I'm just talking about what is she like, 17, 18 now? Oh, no way, man. No. Uh, She came in this morning while I was doing my Bible study, and she said, so as part of my prayers in the morning, I pray, you know, for her and for her walk with the Lord, but I also pray for her uh, future husband and her friends, her future friends. So I have like a set of prayers that I pray for her future friends, and then I pray for her future husband. And uh, she came in, and she sat with me. I was talking with her, and she said, she said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm praying. And she said, well, what for? And I said, well, I was actually praying for you. I was praying for your relationship with the Lord and that you'd have really good friends as you grow up because friends are so great and for your future husband. And she goes, dad, I'm only four. And I was like, <laughs> I, held, I grabbed her so tight. I was like, yes, you are, baby. Yes, you are. You're only four years old. <laughs> Never change. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's where we're at this morning. But we are jumping into 
a passage that is not the same kind of heartache, but it's a heartbreak passage uh, when we think about the book of Romans. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is what we're looking at today. And so if you've been following along with us in this uh, Roman series, we've just kicked it off with season seven. We've covered the kind of first half of Romans chapter one. And last week was really crucial. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say you need to go back and listen to all of the episodes we've recorded so far, but last week, Romans 1, 16 through 17 is basically the thesis statement of the letter. And so if you missed last week, would really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode because in two short verses, Paul is able to kind of encapsulate the mega themes he's going to explore through the rest of this letter to the church in Rome. And so today we're going to look at Romans 1, 18 through 32. I think I'm the only one that hasn't read yet. And this is a long passage, so I will take it upon myself and I will read Romans 1, 18 through 32 for us. Did you rehearse it before this? I have practiced it. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is, it's... I mean, honestly, I would if I were you. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to jump into it. Uh, listener, if you'll just pause for a moment and pray for me wherever you're at silently in your car. Uh, let me read this passage for us and we'll jump into talking through it. It's a big one. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is the word of the Lord. And uh, sometimes I, I tell our church, there are sometimes when you read a passage and you say, this is the word of the Lord and the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's a lot of gratitude in that response. There are other times when you read a passage, a hard passage, and you say, this is the word of the Lord. And it's a little bit more difficult to say thanks be to God. Yeah. And this is one of those passages where you read it and you believe. I believe this is God's word. I believe it's holy. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's infallible. And yet this one feels 
it, you can almost feel it just grating against the consciousness of our age mm-hmm. and the ruts of the human heart. You can just hear the scratching against it. It's not a message that we want to hear about ourselves or hear about the world. And yet it's a passage that we really need to explore and think through today. So let's just begin at the very top. In this passage, we find a story of brokenness. Mm-hmm. Is it our story? Is it the story of the beginning? Is it the world's story? What story is being told in this passage? Does it belong to us, to the world, just Adam and Eve, just to pre, uh, pre-Diluvian earth, pre-flood earth? I mean, who is this passage speaking about? It's all of us. It me. Yep. I mean, this yep. is, you know, this is the classic that you hear the phrase all the time, there's no good news without the bad news. This is the quintessential passage in scripture, I would argue, that says, and here's the bad news. And yep. I think the way R.C. Sproul says it is, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. It's basically pointing to the doctrine of original sin and natural revelation, which are two really big concepts that you need in your toolkit as you're reading the Bible in general. So it's important and it's also painful and yeah. yeah, it's it's for all of us. Now, Jen, you just mentioned natural revelation, and that was one of my questions here that I think we have to explore. It's just this question of natural theology. Uh, verse you know, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him, shown it to them, excuse me, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. JT, what is, when Jin says natural revelation or natural theology, what are we talking about here? And where do we see that in verse 19 and 20? Yeah, so I think natural revelation kind of gets a bad rap sometimes in uh, at least some of the circles I've been in. Revelation is revelation. And Mm -hmm. what we mean by that is God is making himself known in different ways. And so to think about natural revelation, we also need to talk about special revelation, which are the two primary ways that God makes himself known. Special revelation is something that gets talked about all the time, and rightfully mm-hmm. so, in our kind of theological world. Special revelation comes primarily through Christ. You think about Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. Or Hebrews chapter 1, God in former days spoke through prophets and apostles, but now he has spoken to us through his Son. So God is known in Christ. I mean, I've met Jesus in a spiritual sense, but I've not seen Jesus of Nazareth walking the earth. So we need scripture. Scripture is God's other means of making himself known. Think of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. So God is this, this speaking God, which is really important for us to know. One of the most fundamental claims of Christian theology is that God is making himself known. And he makes himself known specifically or specially in Christ and in scripture. That is a salvific, redemptive revelation of God. But what Paul is getting at here is this much more common natural revelation, which is known to all people, whether you've ever read a passage of the Bible or you have come to know Jesus through the indwelling of the Spirit. Everybody has looked up into the heavens. Everybody has seen a sunset. Everybody has seen a sunrise or a mountain peak and thought to themselves, oh my goodness, I am part of God's creation, whether they've said it that way or not, or experienced it that way. And what Paul is talking about here is what the psalmist says, that the heavens declare the glory of God, Mm -hmm. that from day to day, his speech is coming forth. And so think about Genesis chapter one, God speaks 
and his creation comes into, into existence. And that creation mm-hmm. primarily exists to make him known as the creator. So Kyle, you and I have talked about this a lot. I remember reading Calvin's Institutes with you a little bit a few years ago about how how one of the primary ways that God makes himself known before he makes himself known as redeemer is that God makes himself known as creator. And what, what I'm really trying to get at here is I think a lot of people, when they think about natural revelation, think that God has somehow messed up. Therefore, yeah. God had to make himself known specially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's not it. What, and, and, and that's not in the passage here. Paul says that God has been clearly perceived, mm-hmm. that we are without excuse, that although they knew God, they didn't honor God. And right. so natural revelation has no deficiencies. The deficiency in, is not in God's ability to make himself known in creation. It's actually in the creation, us, our ability to know God because, and this is what we're getting at, our sinfulness. Yeah, yeah that's really well said. And that the the deficiency in us is not merely a, uh, a I think it was Andrew Fuller who distinguished between the natural incapacity and the moral incapacity our inability to understand that creation testifies to God as creator and us as creature mm-hmm. is not merely a natural incapacity, meaning it's not just a, a limitation of our knowledge or our ability to know. It's a moral incapacity in that even as we see it testify to the grandeur of God, we're actively rejecting it and suppressing it. Suppressing, yeah. yep. I mean, so verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the picture here is not like we don't, um, it's it's less like, okay, we don't have ears to be able to hear it, this sound, this, the void, the, the, the revelation of God in creation. It's almost like the volume is turning up constantly as we live in the world and we're constantly, our sin nature is constantly trying to turn it back down. Mm-hmm. We're constantly trying to take what is clear and say, oh, but it's not really that way. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we think about understanding God's revelation, we feel like, okay, it's primarily a matter of how sin has affected our ability to understand it cognitively. I mean, that's certainly true. But the fundamental reality is not that there's some sort of mental deficiency in our ability to understand who God is or that it's unclear, uh, supposing that it would, it's God's fault. Uh, but no, it's a moral incapacity where we are constantly rejecting that which is obvious to redeemed eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's significant. You, you touched on this earlier, but it's significant to note for many of us. I think many of us believe that our guilt is established before God at the point that we reject a gospel presentation given to us by someone who walks up and presents the gospel to us, or we read the scriptures and we're like, that's not for me. But what's being said here is something far more fundamental. It's that our guilt is established before God, not because we reject him as Messiah, but because we reject him as creator. That's right. Right. And that's, that's a big deal mm-hmm. um, because in rejecting him as creator, we're not just saying, I don't need you to save me. We're saying, I deny that you made me. I, I am mm-hmm. my own source. I am, you know, I am, I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-existent. And so we begin to ascribe to ourselves things that are only true of the invisible God. Mm-hmm. But I am curious, and I think something that would help our listeners to clarify, does natural revelation give sufficient knowledge of God for salvation. In other words, can I stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and look out at the Grand Canyon and become a Christian? 
No, not under the present reign of darkness and sin and the impact of sin on our lives. I would say that it would be true that in the uh, like a gar- the garden situation, mm-hmm. that natural revelation would be sufficient because the taint of sin had not so misdirected man's relationship with God that mm-hmm. he understood himself fundamentally as cre- creature and not creator. Um, that was his self-conception. Uh, but I would say that certainly under the present impact of sin, knowledge of God as creator or the uh, marveling at the natural beauty of God's created world is not enough. It's not sufficient enough uh, for salvation. It is sufficient enough for condemnation. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it does tell us that there is a God and we are not him, mm-hmm. but it does not give us enough information to tell us who this God is. Like uh, natural revela- revelation tells us, uh, this is not my distinction. This is somebody else and I'm forgetting it. So I just want to be clear. I'm not making this up. I'm riffing off of somebody <laughs> and I can't cite. I don't know who it is. You're not trying to plagiarize either. <laughs> no, natural, natural revelation tells us that God is. Special revelation tells us who God is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So I think that's a good distinction, but I want to ask a question here. This is something I've been wrestling with. I, I agree with everything you've said so far. However, once we know Christ, so the Christian who's indwelt by the spirit understands not just God as creator, but as redeemer knows that God is and knows who God is. You do begin to see who God is in creation mm-hmm. more than you could have seen prior to redemption. Oh, absolutely. That's true. Absolutely. And yeah. so you begin, I think what the reason I think that that's important is because it is there. We just suppress it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair to say. Yes. Well, and we, and we, we misattribute it. I mean, which is what he's going to get into. He says that, you know, they, they worship the creation instead of the creator. So the person who doesn't have the indwelling spirit through the work of Christ looks at the Grand Canyon and worships the Grand Canyon. Right. Instead of giving glory to the one who made it, and yeah, that's the pattern. I, I, I want to see if you would be willing to take it one step further, though. And I think you're saying the same thing, Jen. But like, so you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and if you're if you don't know the Lord, you worship the creation, not the Creator. Let's just say then, five years later, you come to know the Lord, mm-hmm. and you understand God not just as Creator but as Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon again. And what I'm saying is, I think there's a way for us not just to understand, wow, yeah, there is a creator, but also look at the Grand Canyon and say there is a redeemer. Yes. Okay. We're saying the same thing then. But expand on that. I just, I think what I'm saying is, I think the story of the gospel, not just, so I think, I think what, what general revelation or natural revelation is trying to do isn't just teach us that God is creator, but also that God is redeemer. So a silly example might be a flower. I mean, you have something that is dead that goes into the ground and yeah. is planted as a seed and is birthed again. And that is a picture of resurrection. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, now I'm with you. That makes mm-hmm. sense to me now. Well, and that's how Jesus, Jesus used, he incorporates exactly. natural revelation into the parables to exactly. draw those two concepts together. Well, and yeah, so does Paul. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So mm-hmm. I think what I'm trying to say is natural revelation is for the non-Christian sufficient enough to condemn, but for the Christian also sufficient enough to remind us of the gospel. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But here's another question. What would you say to the Christian who says, I mean, I do, like, I'll read my Bible, but my true place where I worship and commune with the Lord is in nature. I, I Listen, I, I love that people love being outside, there and there is a lot to marvel at, you know. I think that the psalmist gives you're us just plenty not of one room. of them. No, that's not what I'm going to say. It's true, but it's not what I'm going to say. <laughs> what I'm going to say is that, like, I think that the admonitions in Scripture for meditating on God's Word 
are yeah, innumerable. And I think that it's not a division that scripture makes. I don't think it's a division we need to make. And if somebody said, hey, I love spending time outdoors, and I would really rather do that than spend time in scripture, I would say, do both. But if Why you're not do just, both? <laughs> that's right. If we're gonna do, but but, but I'll, I'll tell you this. If you come to me and say, Kyle, I, I have to because of how my life is. I can only go for an afternoon walk through this beautiful garden or spend daily time in the word of God, 10 times out of 10, I'm going to say, hey, you're going to have to give up that walk. Mm-hmm. I, I, just because I, 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 don't, I don't think there's any way around scripture being the normative place of spiritual growth in a Christian's life. Yeah, I agree so, with that. I, I think Until there's a lot of beautiful- to the psalmist who says, consider the heavens. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry yeah. because I started this. I pushed the JT <laughs> division button. I also also remember that the longest psalm in the Psalms is a meditation on oh. creation. Oh no, that's right. Um I'm just saying the, I'm just saying you picked an either or I'm saying both. You gotta put a one in front of that Psalm nineteen and turn it into a one nineteen. <laughs> oh. There it is. That's the clip. Um, all right, let's let's before we just take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, I want us to ask this question. Why all this talk of the wrath of God? Because like you don't there's a lot of countercultural stuff in this passage, but right out of the gate, we're taking like verse 18 for the wrath of God. We it doesn't matter what the rest of this passage says, that right there, that immediately puts us in a position where we're going, okay, this doesn't feel like what most people want their relationship with God or to think about God. Nobody wants to think about God's wrath. We're right out of the gate. Why all this talk? Why is the wrath of God a response to this unrighteousness? Well, first of all, I don't think Paul has taken an evangelism course because, dang, he went straight from I'm not ashamed of the gospel to talking about the wrath of God. So obviously he uses different uh, formulas in different epistles, but it is interesting to me here in this, probably the most expansive unpacking of, of the gospel that he's going to do, that this is his, his starting point. Um, and he's attaching, I, I mean, I think he's a, he's what he's doing here is he's pointing them to the breaking of the first and second commands. Like right out of the gate, humanity says no to God's law. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to keep God as God alone. And we are going to worship the creation instead of the creator. And the Old Testament has been explicit that those who reject God's law are subject to God's wrath. So he's, he's setting us up for his whole discussion of, of law and grace. Although he does not explicitly here refer to the Ten Commandments, I, I would say that's where he's, he's headed. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And the wrath of God, I think oftentimes when we hear this, our presumption is that wrath is an inappropriate response. Mm -hmm. Like we hear wrath of God and say, well, why is God being so vengeful? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, Why is God uh, exacting judgment? But the reality is, is that if God is, if the God of the Bible is who he says he is, this is exactly what you would expect from him. The wrath of God is a expression of God's holiness in contrast with sin and unrighteousness, uh, with evil, with wickedness. And it's a response of God's love to the brokenness of the world. It's a response of, uh, it's a response of his love in that God is seeking to make right what sin has made wrong. I mean, I often ask people when they tell me, well, I don't know why, uh, why God's wrath has to be displayed against sin. I often ask them, well, what would be the alternative? Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me what tell me what the opposite of it would be. What mm-hmm. what what is the alternative way that you would imagine that God has no wrath against any sin or just no wrath against your sin? Because mm-hmm. typically when you start exploring this, 
everybody wants God's wrath to be against some kind of sin. Just not theirs. Just not their sin. <laughs> Which like, is what he's, he's going to address that too. He's going he's gonna to call people out on that. But also I think absolutely. it's helped me to think of his wrath as an expression of his love. Like even if a, this is kind of a, a corny example, but JT sends um, Bailey to preschool and let's say that a, a little kid is mean to her on the playground. The wrath of heaven is yes. going to fall on this little yeah. kid. Yeah, <laughs> where our natural response to something or someone that we love deeply is when, when that person is harmed or is in danger of harm is wrath. And so mm-hmm. that's a that was a really helpful connection for me as I was trying to wrestle down what to do with the wrath of God. I think something that made me, if I'm honest with you, a little uncomfortable as I was studying for this and reading this passage is, some of this, some of the scholarly debate around uh, the in verse eighteen, the Greek term "revealed" is apocalypto, and it's in the present tense. Mm-hmm. And I think often we can; it's easy to think about the wrath of God in an eschatological or an end time right. or a future sense. Mm-hmm. Like, well, there, that's coming. And Paul, Paul also highlights here. We'll get to this in a, in a few episodes: the mercy of God, the patience of God, that mm-hmm. He is being patient with us in this time of rebellion. But he also seems to be highlighting a both and here, that it's not just that God's wrath is going to be revealed, but that God's wrath is currently being revealed mm-hmm. yep. against our rebellion and disobedience. And that that is something that is different than like preaching a hellfire and brimstone sermon that if you don't repent one day, you're going to experience God's wrath. He seems to right. be also saying that that the wrath of God is currently a part of our lived reality. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to suggest that anybody who's walking through any kind of challenge right now or difficulty or or suffering, that that is God's wrath. More than, more than likely, it's absolutely not God's wrath. It's just the reality of living in a broken world. But that isn't to say that we don't incur the, the discipline of God in our lives in the midst of our rebellion. Yeah. Well, and we're going to get, we haven't, the when we get into the language of he gave them up, you know, three times yep. it says he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. And that put me in mind of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart back in Exodus. Mm. It's like in right. order for us to be subject to God's wrath, all he has to do is give us over to that which we've said we want. That's right. So he's not up there throwing thunderbolts at us. He's up there letting the consequences play out for our hardness of heart. Mm. That's that's kind of a that's a helpful way for me to to think about it. It's, it reminds me also of the scene in the garden, where he basically lays out for the man and the woman. Okay, guess what? This is your new reality. It's not like yeah, he mm-hmm. shows up every day in the garden to inflict, you know, to to instigate conflict between the man and the woman. He's like, this is what you have off have have offered yourself up to. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold.
you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. So let's talk about the story here. Uh, looking in verse 21 and moving forward, it, we there's a little bit of a shift. You kind of have like this the high level kind of observations about, okay, here's natural theology. Here's the judgment of God against mm-hmm. the fact that men reject or that humanity rejects um, God the creator. But now we're getting a little bit of the story. For although, although they knew God, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It feels like the tone has shifted here where we've moved from here's kind of what happened at a conceptual level to like here's how it played out real time. So it's like we're talking about specific people or groups of people. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Now, this story here, it begins with an idolatry problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what's happening. There's an exchange that's happening. They uh, they don't see themselves as subservient to the creator. They reject the creator for their own will and they begin to worship other things. Uh, they begin to practice idolatry, which is the exaltation of something that is not God to the place where only God should be. And what's happening here is it looks like there is the act of suppression you know, they, they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. And they begin, and then hear this phrase, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Now, I've been, as I've been studying this passage, both to preach it and then for this podcast, one of the things that came up is that some scholars suggest that this is really talking about the pre-Diluvian or pre-flood experience of humanity, that there was a, a cycle of wickedness that had started with Adam and Eve. And it's not to say that it's distant from us. It's just to say that that's kind of where the roots of the story are. And yet that cycle, we know that cycle repeats itself through the Old Testament, right? I mean, God's people do this over and over and over again. So it is a cycle mm-hmm. of sin. But when you hear this story, I guess, do you feel like, oh, it's uniquely situated to a specific time? Or do you feel like, no, this is Okay, yeah. I mean, no, I I think one of the reasons that I would push back, I mean, it certainly is reflective of that time, so I'm not trying to say that that's not accurate to say that it applies to that time. But even by introducing these categories in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Mm. That's an appeal to a much better, bigger portion of scripture, I think Paul is thinking of the wisdom and folly paradigm that's set up in Proverbs and elsewhere. And that's characteristic of all of humankind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That there is a pattern that humanity has been in since the beginning Mm -hmm. where they continue to make this foolish exchange, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. unwise exchange. And certainly you're right. We see this play out throughout the Old Testament among God's people over and over again, whether it's with Baal or it's the Asherah poles or it's the gods of Egypt or Babylon or whoever. They're very uh, 
very inclined, right. as all of humanity is, to make this exchange of worshiping Yahweh uh, for worshiping a, crea- a creation, a mm-hmm. creature. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's kind of a clever thing that he does here with the pronouns because he get, he uses they, them, they, them, they, them. And then we know he's going to flip that further down and it's going to become yep. you. So yep. he's, I, I think he's actually intentionally allowing his listener to speculate about, no, wait, who, who's they? You know, yes. like, is this me? Or no, it's probably not me he, because this is some bad stuff he's listening off here. So this can't be about me. This is about someone else. And I think that's what yep. he's doing here. And we know because of what's coming in chapter two, which we'll get to in the next episode, that there is already some confusion among the church in Rome over really who has the moral high ground here. And I think you're exactly right, Jen. I think in this passage, the way that he's writing this, the way he's communicating it is leaving room probably for the Jews and the Gentiles in that room. I bet the Jews at this point are looking over at the Gentiles like, yeah, you filthy, (laughs) wicked idolaters here in Rome, you know, with all of your Caesar cult and all this stuff. And I bet the Gentiles are looking over at the Jews and being like, hey, listen, we know your story. You know what I'm saying? What, <laughs> and what, that's what, what we're what? talking about here. Idolatry. Exactly. Uh-huh, yeah. Breaking right. the commands so, that we didn't even have, by the way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. So I think you're right, Jen. I think you're right that there is a intentional... Uh, it's a setup uh, a little bit. It's a setup. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. you're right. He's, he is setting up that punch. Uh, let, me, let, me ask you, let me ask you this. I find that when I teach this passage or when I talk about idolatry generally people's imaginations go to like the most basic forms of idolatry. Mm -hmm. Like they hear this and they're like, I don't do any of that. Like I don't have (laughs) idols, right? Like I don't, you know, I would never exchange, I would never worship an image resembling mortal man or birds or animals or creeping things. That sounds so silly. And I think that sometimes when we think about idolatry using the imagery of the Bible, it can feel really like, the imaginative gap between us and the world of scripture is very wide because we don't inhabit this kind of imaginative world that they did. But I just want to be clear. Idolatry is still a, is, is still a problem. Yes. <laughs> People still make this exchange, right? Maybe it's not images resembling an animal or a bird, but it could just as easily be any number of very real things that people place their hope in and say, Hey, I'm going to worship this and give my life and surrender to this as opposed to God. Yes, JT, have you seen that to be true? Oh, absolutely. Not only in my own life, but I think just in the world that we all inhabit and live in. And I want to be I want to be really clear about what I'm going to say here, but like just what came to mind when you said, you know, worshiping images resembling a bird or, you know, the created thing. It's like, and I was watching a preseason football game last night of a bunch of, you know, 50-year-old men worshiping a Seahawk. You know, and it's like... <laughs> Now, of course, we're talking about something different. I love NFL football, I love college football. We're in no way suggesting that you shouldn't have joy in God's created world. We were just saying that there's so much to enjoy about what God has created. But like, think about what happens in our hearts when a bunch of 19-year-old kids throw, you know, score a touchdown. Yeah. With a with a with a football. Or think about what happens in your heart when you, you know, and it's not just sports. It could be going to a movie theater. It could be, uh, like we just said, going on a walk and and worshiping. I mean, I live in Colorado. People move to Colorado to live the good life outdoors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things that I have to do on Sunday mornings is to, is to tell people, you need to be here, not at the lake, because mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to worship not just the creator, but the redeemer, which is what mm-hmm. we just talked about. And so, again, I'm not suggesting that loving an NFL football team is idolatry, but it can be. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 
it absolutely yeah. it, it really can be giving yourself over to an inversion of the created order that you were never meant to take that much affection, joy, pleasure, and desire in. Well, and I think that's the tricky thing with idolatry is sometimes outwardly there's nothing wrong with the behavior. It all goes back to motive, right? Like I think one of the most common um, ways to shame young moms is around idolizing their kids. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. don't make your kids an idol. Well, a mom who is fully invested in the upbringing of her kids may be doing that because she needs something from it that is unholy, but she also may be doing it as an expression of her love for God. And I can't look at that woman and know what her motive is necessarily, but the Lord knows. And so, you know, it's like the Seahawks. Some of those, some of those people are just there having a good time and celebrating God's goodness to us through professional sports. Other people are so invested in it that they're going to punch a hole in their chair if things don't go the way that they are hoping with the game. So sometimes you can identify idolatry pretty clearly and other times you can't. And he's obviously, what Paul is dealing with here is, hey, this this is a heart issue that we have to get down to, and it's a heart issue for every single one of us. So you may escape the idolatry claim with regard to your kids, but is it harbored somewhere else? And, or with regard to the way you think about sports, but is it harbored somewhere else? And I think what he's saying here is, yes, none of us yeah. is free from idolatry. Absolutely, absolutely. And part of the consequence of working out that idolatry or living in that idolatry is this next phrase, God gave them up. It says, In verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. So we get this causality here. Mm -hmm. God has given them up because of their persistence in idolatry. That's Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. So this phrase, God gave them up, Jen, you've already mentioned this, and I think you brought in a really good comparison with the story of Pharaoh. Could you maybe just circle back to what you were saying? Think about what does this phrase, God gave them up, indicate? I have something I want to talk about here as far as free will and determinism goes, but talk about what you're saying about Pharaoh. Well, so, and there's, if you notice, it's in verse 24, it's in verse 26, and it's verse 28. And so some of what I think Paul is doing, similarly to the way that Moses does this in the Exodus narrative, is he's repeating God giving them over, and he's doing it um, surrounding a bunch of different descriptions of the ways that people behave when they're given over. Like he doesn't say God gave them up and then he doesn't expand on it. He's going to give some color to that. In the same way, the Exodus story did this. It's like, if you thought that Pharaoh was only committed to his idolatry on one level, guess what? Here's another one. If you thought he was only committed to it on two levels, right? And then he goes through 10 levels basically before he's ultimately not broken of his idolatry. He he has a moment where he goes, ah, oh, you know what? Maybe this is smarter for me to let them go. And then he changes his mind again because his heart has grown. If it started out hard, it has only gotten harder as the story goes along. Yes. And that's the progression that Paul is pointing us to here is you started with a hard heart and then you just kept getting harder. Yes, yes. And God's allowance or permittance of this, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we get to this passage, and you, we have a couple of opportunities to talk about this in Romans, uh, certainly here. Mm-hmm. It's going to come up in Romans 8. It's going to come up in Romans 9. But I think when we're, we get to a passage like this, it's very easy for us to say, okay, well, God gave them up. What does that mean? Did God just gives up on them? Right. Or God's grace isn't sufficient? It's like, no. The We are free to act in accordance with our desires. And the unrighteous and idolatrous heart has only one set of desires. 
and it is the desires for continued unrighteousness and wickedness. And so God's God's permittance, his allowance of them to continue in this is not God throwing in the towel. It's not God saying, I'm not sovereign over all things. It's God allowing humanity to act in accordance with the sinful, wicked, and idolatrous desires of their heart. You want this, you can have it, and there will be consequences attached to having it. That's Mm -hmm. different than saying, God merely didn't care or God threw in the towel on them or God resigned. He threw up his hands. I can't do anything with you. Uh, Or even God saying, I'm going to force this upon you. None of those things are what's at play here. What's at play is that God saying, you know what? I, I want you, I'm going to allow you to act in accordance with your desires. And if your desires are wicked, I'm going to allow you to act in accordance with them. We know he doesn't do that into perpetuity because God intervenes graciously to give us new hearts and new sets of desires. But in this part of the story, as a part of the wickedness of humanity, what we're seeing is that it is not, um, it is not outside of God's will and character for him to allow sinful human beings to act in accordance with their desires until they realize how bankrupt they are. Mm-hmm. What's what he said in the garden? He said, you yep. will surely die. And um, yep. rather than an instantaneous death, it is this hardening, 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 hardening until it's, and I think the other thing that's fascinating to me is like, if you read, um, you know, uh, in Isaiah, there's the description of the man who carves the block of wood and, you know, and then it is not this thing, right, in, thing in my right hand, a lie, this inanimate object that is, it, it's, it's a, it's hard. And yep. it's almost like over time, we calcify into the idol itself. We become just, we're no longer the hearts of flesh. We're, we're this idolatrous heart of stone that because we've worshiped self so long that it becomes inanimate. We, we, we essentially, we die spiritually. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. One of the ways Augustine talks about this in his book on the confessions, he's, if you haven't read the confessions, it, uh, it's a really important yeah. book, I think, especially for our day. But he talks about just the nature of sin. And I'm thinking about this as I get ready to teach in our institute here on the nature of sin in a, in a few weeks. He talks about going to a peach tree to for no reason at all. A bunch of his buddies come to him and say, hey, let's go to this peach tree and shake all the peaches down so we can get peaches. And what, I, I won't re- recount the whole episode, but one of the things he talks about, I think it's specifically highlighted here in verse 32, is that he says, it wasn't just that I delighted in getting the peaches. It's that I delighted in the sin itself. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what I think you're talking about, Jen, is there's a sense in which we not only do become uh, calcified, I think is the word that you used, we enjoy the calcification. Like Mm -hmm. it isn't just that, so like, let's just say one of our listeners, which I would imagine, or we could say all of our listeners, all of us, as we battle and rage against the sinfulness and brokenness of the world, what Augustine is getting at, and I don't think you can understand the depths of this passage until you get to the point of the realization that you don't just enjoy the results of your sin, the pleasure or the gratification of your sin or what it brings you at the end of your sin, but you actually, because of the inversion of the human heart, enjoy the sin itself. Yeah. Well, and there are two ways to escape feelings of guilt about your sin. One is to repent and the other is to repeat the sin over and over again until you no longer feel remorse. Yeah, yeah. man. Wow. Oof. Oof. Okay. A little uh, ray of sunshine. Thank you. Under a word from the sponsors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I want, here's what, I'm going to write that that one down. 
here's what I want us to do. And I want us to double down on this. And I want us to say it very clearly. And the reason for it is because of how this passage gets used. And I would say abused. So I want to be really clear. Let's identify before we move into the next section of this, what is the core issue so far in this passage? Like if somebody asks you, What's the defining transgression, the defining problem of Romans 1, 18 through 32? Would it be fair to say that we would all say idolatry? Yes. JT, would you feel good about that? I would say idolatry. I want to use a different word, not because it disagrees, but it's been helpful for me as I've thought about this because he he both gives like a kind of spiritual sin, but also physical sin. It's inversion. And inversion is a result of idolatry. We invert the creator for the creation. We invert natural order of things for an unnatural order of things. We all are inverting the way God intends his creation to work. Yes. But, but so far the fundamental inversion, the fundamental idolatry, the fundamental rebellion and rejection is, is a vertical one between us and God. Yes. That's been, that's the foundation. And the reason I want us to say that really clearly is we're about, if we've been hearing about the, the, the story of our brokenness so far, we're about to start talking about the impacts of our brokenness. But the right. impact of that brokenness comes as a result of that foundation. This is that we sin because we are sinners. We, mm-hmm. We're not sinners because we sin. We move from this is who we are to this is what we do. And yet this passage, oftentimes when it gets deployed at a popular level, its emphasis is almost always squarely. And here's a bunch of bad stuff that you shouldn't do. And look at how our culture does all this bad stuff. Let's go beat them over the head for doing all the bad stuff. We got to talk about the impact of brokenness. It's true. We 100%, it's there. We can't avoid it. And we're about to dive right into it. But if we miss the story that it's embedded in, we will not be communicating this the way that Paul intends to communicate it. Yeah, that's a really important thing you're pointing out that we started with the horizontal, uh, I'm sorry, with the vertical um, relationship. And then we moved to the horizontal, which is that pattern you see all over the place. And what he's basically doing here is he's showing us that the current state of humanity, apart from the intervention of the gospel, is that we hate God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and therefore hate our neighbor as we hate ourselves. We are filled with self-loathing. We, we lash out at our neighbors. And it's all because it started with a, with, with a breaking of the vertical uh, relationship. Yeah. And so the solution then is not simply to start loving your neighbor, right? The, yeah. the solution is going to be learn to love the Lord your God the way that you were created to. Yeah. So the immediate consequences that we get into in verses 26 through 27 and into 28 and 32, we hear for this reason, we hear the phrase again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. I want to keep going here because this is a whole. Mm -hmm. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parent, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So the consequences of this idolatry, it leads to an immorality problem. Mm -hmm. We are now living not just in rebellion against God, but contrary to his law and his standard, contrary to when we talked about the righteousness of God, we talked about righteousness is who God is, 
it's his nature. We also talked about righteousness of God. It's a phrase that can be used for his holy standard, right. what God does and what he expects. We've, we've already begun in this passage saying we exchange the glory of the righteous God for unrighteous creatures. And now we're getting to the place of we're walking in contrast. We're walking in opposition to God's holy standard. And this is what it looks like. So what kind of behavior does this lead to? It's not monolithic, even though oftentimes, again, this passage is treated as if only one sin and namely sexual sin Mm -hmm. is on the table. But there's a lot more on this buffet of brokenness than sexual sin, right? I mean, we hear about malice, deceit, strife, murder, disobedient to parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's basically, he's hitting every aspect of Old Testament law here. I mean, he is. And it almost feels to me, I know it's God's word and I know that it's spirit inspired. And so there's order to it or sense to it, but it feels like he's like, look at all of this. He's not, he's not Mm -hmm. giving you like an exhaustive list. I don't even know that he's giving you a, a list that is ordered in a particular way to achieve a particular end. He might be, um, but I think anyone can read this and take a plain reading away from it that is like, guys, it's bad and it's pervasively bad. And and that's the that's the big point that should be drawn, I think, from reading this is this is what hardness of heart looks like. It touches every piece of humanity. Exactly. And one thing I wondered whenever I was reading this uh, the first time and as I was studying it to preach it, I, I wondered, Jen, if it was a little bit of a setup like the first part of it was in the ordering. So just yeah. hypothetically here, okay. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but just go with me. Verse 26 through 27, keep in mind where this church is at. They're in Rome, right? Gentile and Jewish Christians. I'm imagining, I'm just I'm guessing a little bit here, but based off of the climate of Rome, I'm mm-hmm. imagining the Jews had probably castigated Gentile Christians for their sexual ethic. Oh, for I'm sure. Just, I'm just going out on a limb to suggest that probably would have been the case. Right. And I'm thinking in verse 26 and 27, at this moment, Paul is striking a nerve with the Jewish Christians and they're probably looking at the other side of the room, so to speak, and being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We know about your wickedness. This is all your dirt. This is all your ugliness. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I bet the Jews are expecting Paul's going to hit him again. It sounds like he's about to just double down again, but they were filled with, and now this taxonomy is far more comprehensive. And Mm -hmm. it almost feels like a a retelling of the Ten Commandments explicitly. Like these are all the ways that you've broken it. So I'm not saying that I know that to be true. I've just got a sense of between the Gentile and Jewish Christians there, if this was ordered in one way or another, it might be ordered for exactly the problem he's going to be addressing in Romans 2, where he's going, hey, neither one of you can sit in moral judgment on each other here. Yeah, I think it's part of the setup for sure. And that is not to diminish at all that this is one of the clearest articulations of the Christian sexual ethic, or at least an aspect of it. But but I do think that there's a bigger thing happening here. And I think you're exactly right. I think he's he's wanting, um, he's wanting his, he knows the letter's being read. He knows they're all sitting there. Uh, He wants them in the right spot um, when he's going to deliver the sucker punch. Absolutely. And I don't think we can walk away from the impact of this passage. And Jen, and and you're right to call attention to it. I don't want to. I think we have to be clear that Paul is pointing at sexual sin in this passage. And he's saying very loudly, sexual sin dishonors God. And it's a fruit of rejecting God and his purposes for the world. That Mm -hmm. is clear. I mean, he, he is saying that here. 
And he's saying it here in a very clear way. This includes all sorts of surrendering mm-hmm. of the sexual ethic. It's not just one. It's pornography. It's mm-hmm. sexual activity outside of marriage. It's sexual abuse. And yes, it's sexual activity with people of the same gender. That This is all folded in. It's sexual immorality broadly, not narrowly. Well, and I mean, the you know, with the first, therefore God gave them up in verse 24, he says, in the lusts of their hearts. So he doesn't even start with adultery. He he pulls a Jesus juke because this is what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it is said, not, do not commit adultery. So there's the, the Christian sexual ethic. Sex belongs inside marriage between a man and a woman. But then he says, but your problem is actually not adultery, it's lust. And so Paul yeah. doesn't even... He doesn't even speak about adultery as he's he's leading into this. He just goes straight to the heart. And he's like, lust is your problem. And here's here's how lust expresses itself, not just in your sexual ethic, but in every area of your life when it when it um when it is what controls you. Yes, absolutely. I think we have to pause here and just speak to the audience. I you know, I, it was some application here. This is us stepping away from just the exegesis of this text to talking broadly about this. But I think it has to be clearly said, and it needs to be said loudly and more often, everybody is born with sexual brokenness. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Mm -hmm. There is not a way of following Jesus that is not going to require all of us to practice self-denial and Mm self-sacrifice when it comes to the lust of our heart Mm -hmm. and the sexual desires of our lives. Period. Mm -hmm. That's true for everybody who has ever lived. That's right. And the reason for that is because sin has broken all of us at the most fundamental levels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that if we, I think a lot of times, I see this in my own congregation with people that are walking in the way of Jesus, but also really practicing a very deliberate sacrifice of sexual desire. I feel like a lot of times we can talk about the impact of sin on our sexual desires in a very monodimensional way way where we basically are like the people who experience sexual desires that are different from mine are the only people who experience broken sexual desires. That's not the case. Yeah. Everybody's sexual desires are broken. I think Everybody. the I think the non-pastoral responses to sexual brokenness are always a result of a denial of our own sexual brokenness. And that's I mean that you know Paul's going to go there. He's going to say you who are you to judge which doesn't mean that we don't call out sexual sin. It means that we do so recognizing that we we're part of that system. Like there is something in us that wants to assign a greater level of severity to someone else's sexual sin problem than to our own. And I think we have to be really careful about that. I think we have to ask ourselves, what's inside of me that makes me want to, to do that? Yep. So, but it's not the only marks of a debased mind that we find. Uh, is just sexual brokenness. We find all other marks of a debased mind. We find all of this list. And Paul ends with verse 32 saying, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Mm-hmm. So this is the the unrighteousness and the wickedness on display here that God's wrath is against, that God has given the people over to, is not merely their committing of the sin. It's the approval of that. And now yeah. we get a sense of this feels like it strikes home uh, very closely with us in our, in our experience here and would have, ex- would have struck home with the audience in Rome. Mm-hmm. There, was, there were things that Paul has just mentioned in this list that the culture in Rome would have given explicit or implicit approval to do mm-hmm. the, the world around. And the same is true in our world today. I yep. mean, 
regardless of how you think about some of these issues here, is there any debate at all that we live in a world where tacit approval or explicit approval is given to walking in the unrighteous acts that are named here? No. That is, it's incontestable. It absolutely is given approval over and over and over again. And so we are in a situation where the cross pressure is not merely God's will for our lives, our broken desires. No, the cross pressure is God's will for our lives, our broken desires, and the outright approval of the world to walk in our broken desires and not God's will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes these passages can be used to point the finger at the sins that we most hate. But Mm -hmm. the point of a passage like this is to get you to the point where you cannot point a finger at anybody else but yourself. This list is so exhaustive that nobody gets to read it and say, look at those sinners over there. This list is so exhaustive that we're supposed to read it and say, look at the sinner in here. Look at the sinner in me. Because if you get to the end of this, you think to yourself, I mean, look at all those people over there. I can't believe how awful they are, horrible they are, you've missed the point of the passage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, this passage is really uh, going to be crucial for our understanding of Romans 2, which we'll cover in the next episode, because Paul is going to be getting right to the heart of the judgment between Gentile and Jewish Christians there, the church in Rome. Um, listen, I, I know this was a longer episode, but I just felt like we needed to take more time with this passage. Yeah. It, it's a really important one. It's often misunderstood, and it's really pivotal, I think, for the next couple of chapters as we explore those together. Listen, uh, we are so grateful for our sponsor, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. If the next step in your service to Christ and His church is additional theological training, please register today to attend Southern Seminary's preview day on October 15th. For just $25, Southern will cover two nights of lodging as well as all your meals on preview day. You can reserve your spot now by going to sbts.edu slash preview. And our next episode here on Knowing Faith, we're gonna begin to uncover how God's law might help or hurt our problem. Grace and peace.